Huddling around the FM radio dial with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Broadcasting on Treaty 7 land. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CW 90.9 FM in Calgary. is a country that has a facade of strength, of unity, of power, but there are many cracks in that world. If you look at Israel economically, on a macro level, it performs well. But if you go deeper into the society, the gaps are very, very wide and are growing. So I think what you will see in Israel is a divided society, but one that the leadership would always try to unite around the common enemy, which usually are the Palestinians. That's Ilan Pape, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Ilan Pape and Diana Butu on Israel and Palestine. What's next? The decades-long one-sided Washington policy in favor of Israel reached new heights during the Trump regime. The peace process is a joke. The ever-expanding Jewish-only colonies, known euphemistically as settlements, have grown ever larger. The possibility of a sovereign, viable Palestinian state has dramatically receded. Yet, despite the occupation, the Palestinians practice what is called in Arabic asamud, steadfastness. They stay on the land and resist. What's next? Edward Said, the late great Palestinian-American scholar, often cited Antonio Gramsci's phrase, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. But then Said always quickly added, you can't just say, things are bad, but never mind, I'm going forward. You have to say things are bad and analyze them intellectually. And on the basis of that analysis, you construct a movement forward based on optimism, the ability, and the desire to change things. Our guests today are Ilan Pape and Diana Butu. Ilan Pape is professor of history at the University of Exeter. He was formerly a senior lecturer in political science at the University of Haifa. He's the author of many books, including On Palestine with Noam Chomsky. Diana Butu, a human rights attorney based in Ramallah, Palestine, has served as legal advisor to the Palestine Liberation Organization. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Globe and Mail. This webinar, recorded in late November, was organized by the Middle East Children's Alliance in Berkeley. Diana Butu and Ilan Pape were in Haifa, Israel. We begin with Diana Butu. The situation right now in Palestine it's it's hard to it's hard to describe just how terrible the situation is. We have a combination of the pandemic 
and what the pandemic has meant, but also more than half a, a century of military occupation. And with the combination of these two came a third um, crisis, and that was the Trump administration. Now, the reason that I bring in the impact of the Trump administration is because the Trump administration spent its four years focused on one international issue and only one international issue, and that was Israel. It was Israel first and Israel only. They didn't focus on um, other issues around the world. There was an attempt to try to deal with North Korea. There was an attempt to try to do something in China. But really, the, the Trump administration's focus was solely on Palestine. And their focus on Palestine was on extinguishing, and I can't say this strong enough, extinguishing the Palestinian cause. Now, they did this through a variety of means. The first was, um, was by, by closing down the Palestinian embassy in Washington, D.C. The first way, the, one of the ways that you cut off, um, cut off contact, one of the ways that you unrecognize a people is by unrecognizing their embassy. And so that was one of the first measures uh, that, they, that they did. The second measure was the one that we all heard about, which was moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem illegally. And then the other measures were also um, within, the, within the U.S. now embassy. They actually closed down the consulate so that Palestinians no longer had a U.S. address that they could go to. They had to go to the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem if they wanted any services. Again, trying to break the will of Palestinians and trying to make sure that we're no longer recognized. In other words, just turn us into a minority like every other minority. Then came the other steps like recognizing Israeli sovereignty, again, illegally, over the Golan Heights, uh, cutting off aid to UNRWA. And the reason they did that was to try to extinguish the, the refugee issue, um, to then cutting off aid to the Palestinian Authority, including to a number of humanitarian uh, institutions, including hospitals. All throughout the, the way, every step of the way, the attempt was to really try to extinguish us and to extinguish our cause. And we see the effects of this on the ground. The effects of it on the ground is that now we have among the highest rates of unemployment, this is even before the pandemic hit, than, than ever before. We see that per capita income has gone backwards. We see that the ability to be able to move has gone backwards. We see that while, this, while many thought that somehow the Europeans were going to step in and uh, provide support that they didn't, and, and the worst part of this is that in January, just before the pandemic hit, we saw the unveiling of the Trump plan. And with the unveiling of the Trump plan, it became very clear what the Trump administration is intending to do is to tick off every single item off of Netanyahu's wish list. And one of those items off of Netanyahu's wish list is to have as much Palestinian land as possible with as few Palestinians as possible. 
And it was that whole process, that whole Trump plan, that then fast forwarded all of these plans for annexation to the point where I believe it was in May, where uh, the where Prime Minister Netanyahu said that this is an opportunity that they're not going to pass up, um, that they're going to make sure that as long as the, as Trump is in office, that they are not going to pass up whatever opportunity um, is presented to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do. Now, add to that it, within the Trump plan. There was a design um, that a lot of people don't necessarily talk about, but it's important to talk about, of actually transferring Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, denationalizing them and becoming so that they could become uh, attached to the to the truncated Palestinian state. And within that Trump plan, we saw that what it was, what the quote unquote state was going to look like, and they didn't even use the term state, was simply a series of disconnected islands with a large Palestinian population um, and with, uh, with, uh, with completely surrounded and controlled by Israel on every level. And so the, what we have since seen since that time is that there really hasn't been a pushback against the Trump plan by the international community. The only pushback that we saw came in the form of when Netanyahu this summer was speaking of annexation. We heard members of the international community step forward and say that they would be opposed to annexation. But while they're opposed to formal annexation, they have done nothing to stop the informal or the de facto annexation that we see happening on a daily basis. In other words, the international response has been practically nothing. Now, with, um, with the new Biden administration that's coming into place, I want to be clear in saying that I do not expect, and I know for a fact, that um, that Biden is not going to liberate Palestine. I've been saying this for a while. What I do think that is going to happen, however, is a rolling back of some of the humanitarian issues or the impact of some of the measures that the Trump administration uh, did to make sure that some of these humanitarian issues are addressed. So what is that? For example... I'll put it in the checklist of what I think they will do and will what they won't do. I don't expect that they're going to move the embassy back from Jerusalem back to Tel Aviv. I do not expect that. There hasn't all throughout the primaries, not a single Democratic candidate said that they would, including Bernie Sanders. And uh, and so I so I don't see that any of that is going to happen. The second thing that I think we won't be seeing immediately is the issue of the Golan Heights and recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the, over the Golan Heights. Again, I'd be a little bit surprised if the Biden administration took some bold political measures. Where I do think that we are going to potentially see, see some change is uh, reinstating of funding to the Palestinian Authority, recognition once again of the Palestinian Authority, uh, reinstating a funding to UNRWA and those sorts of humanitarian measures. But on the big political picture, I don't think that we're going to see any of that happen. Now, that said, I think it's also imperative 
that we, being those who are in solidarity and we Palestinians, that we start pushing for something bigger and something different. This model of bilateral negotiations, which undoubtedly the, the Biden administration is going to push for, and undoubtedly Abu Mazen is going to agree to, is has been a failed model. It was designed to fail from the beginning. It's, uh, it has proven that it's been designed to fail, and it has failed. All that it has brought us over the course of um, the past 27 years is more and more and more settlements. It's brought us um, less freedom of movement. It's brought us more Israeli control and, uh, and more living under Israel's thumb. And this is why I think now is the time that it is vitally important for the Palestinian leadership and for uh, the, the Palestinian solidarity community to be pushing for beyond this. It's no longer acceptable for us to go back to the status quo ante, the status quo as it was before Trump took office. Trump's whole point in take, when he took office, his whole point when he instituted these measures, the Trump plan was the crowning of all of the measures that he had taken on the ground beforehand. It was the culmination of it. It wasn't something new, it was the culmination of all of the measures that he'd been taking up until that point. And so it's really important for us now, particularly now, to be pushing for decolonization and to be pushing for liberation. This has to come from us at home. It's no longer acceptable, I believe, for us to continue to speak in these same terms that have, were spoken about in the, in the early 90s. We're well, past those, we're well past those years. And yet, sadly, we have a Palestinian government that keeps speaking in those terms. It's not at all surprising to me that the Palestinian Authority has resumed uh, security cooperation slash collaboration um, because for two reasons. First was because the Palestinian Authority is nearly bankrupt and Israel continue, continuing to hold on to that money that is much needed for the Palestinian economy. But two, uh, the Palestinian president wants to look as though he is the good guy, that he's the one who's willing to be kind to Biden, um, that he's the one who's willing to do what is asked of him. And so he will continue to go down this path of being the good guy, doing everything that is asked of him with the false expectation that somehow the Biden administration is going to, to pull some miracle and do something. Um, I'm, I don't expect that that is going to happen at all. I also believe is a third reason that the reason that he's resumed the security cooperation slash collaboration is because he wants to kill off any discussion of having any form of elections whatsoever. So with these you know, statements, I tried to keep it as uh, under my 20 minutes. Um, I'm going to turn it over to, uh, to my friend um, and mentor, Ilan Pape, and, uh, and thank you very much for inviting me. So let me start with the conundrum, uh, which will explain why I always have a certain uh, streak of optimism in me 
while I, I totally share the, the analysis of, of uh, Diana about the, the reality. And here's the conundrum. Israel has the strongest military in the region. Its policies are never criticized. Uh, it enjoys immunity for everything it does from the United States through Europe and recently uh, was given the green light by several uh, Arab states. Uh, the other member states of the United Nations don't do much to stop it. It feels totally free to bomb Gaza at will, to arrest anyone it wishes in the West Bank at will, and to intimidate its neighbors at will. And yet, Israel invests millions of dollars to try and stifle any criticism heard by members, ordinary members, of the civil society around the world as if these kinds of critiques or these kinds of condemnations are an existential threat for the Jewish state. They would chase old women, young men, who dare to uh, question Zionism, to support the boycott, divestment, and sanction campaign, to organize an event in, in a small university. The Israeli embassies and consulates around the world don't deal with the Iranian danger, as they call it. They deal only with one thing, which is they call, and they have a special office for this, the war on the legitimization of Israel, or the war against the delegitimization of Israel. If you're so powerful, if the Palestinians are in a situation where they cannot fight back, that they, uh, their very success is by just clinging to the homeland, uh, showing smooth steadfastness, and nothing more than that. Uh, why is there such a craving for legitimization after 72, 72 years of Israel's existence? And I think this subconscious sometimes, Israeli understanding that they are not legitimate, that there is a, a serious moral issue with the legitimacy, not just of the occupation of the West Bank, not just with the siege of the, over the Gaza Strip or the apartheid policy towards the Palestinians inside Israel, but with the very notion of the Jewish state and the way it was founded and the way it is maintained. They know, and for some insidious reason, they believe that they have the force to wipe out such a thought from anyone on the globe. And of course, they will not succeed in doing that. And the only people who could provide them legitimacy, not just for a state, but for the millions of Jews who live now in what used to be historical Palestine, the only people who give them can give them genuine legitimacy are the Palestinians themselves. And this, I think, is a conundrum, which means that their policies can be very uh, aggressive, cruel, brutal, uh, but it doesn't mean that through that force, 
they are winning the one battle that they wish to win, which is the moral battle. If I would put it differently, I can say that Israel is built on two pillars, a material pillar and a moral pillar. And the material pillar is very clear. It's the army, it's the high-tech nation, it's a very successful economy, uh, and it's a very modern state. That's the material uh, pillar. The moral pillar has been eroded, or was, is, is constantly questioned uh, quite successfully over the years, and you cannot use all your material power to win your moral uh, legitimacy. And I think this is the, the one tension that exists in Israel that is, for me, is a ray of hope for the future, because it means that eventually, uh, or maybe, hopefully, rather than eventually, but hopefully, this uh, question of legitimacy, this question of moral validity, this question of moral behavior and policy will one day be important, not only for the millions of people in the civil society who for years show solidarity with the Palestinian people, but also for people in positions of power to, who, have, and who also can have the power uh, to impact the reality on the ground in Palestine. We know what happened to such politicians, be they, be they in the Democratic Party in the United States or in the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. They, they are targeted ruthlessly by Israel, and in some cases, they succeed in bringing them down as political uh, uh, figures. Uh, and they have done the same uh, through APAC in the 60s to very powerful senators. But it means that every now and then, the overall solidarity and support for the Palestinian cause filters into the corridors of power, be they uh, in government, in the media, or uh, the uh, academy. Now, having said that, I would like to uh, share Diana's analysis of the present reality. I'm not saying that we have learned how to use this conundrum that I described in order to push forward a just solution for the Palestine question. But I'm just saying that we should focus on that, especially for those of us who work for the cause of Palestine from the outside. From the inside, steadfastness and the popular resistance would be still the most important means for liberating Palestine and bringing freedom and justice to the country. And everyone who lives in it and everybody who was expelled from it. The reason we have to focus on it is, and Diana, I think, uh, described it very well, is that there is very little hope for any change from within Israel. All the Israeli parties or political powers that have the ability to impact policy on the ground are working within the ideological framework of Zionism. Uh, in fact, this ideological um, framework has uh, diminished in a way, or rather was shrunk over the years, so that nowadays 
the main alternative for the present Israeli government is a right-wing coalition, maybe with some center parties. Even if you get rid of Bibi Netanyahu, you will probably get Naftali Bennett or someone like him as a, as a prime minister, which means that the basic policies on the ground, which are a continued annexation of parts of the West Bank, uh, the continued apartheid system that is imposed on the Palestinians inside Israel, the continued siege and blockade of the Gaza Strip, all the, and, and of course, continuous denial of the Palestinian right of return, all of these policies will continue more or less, uh, maybe with a different discourse, maybe in a different style, maybe less overt kind of declarations about it, but um, there is no indication that there is in the offering in Israel of any political power that intends in any meaningful way uh, uh, to change this uh, policy. Now, this, as Diana explained to us, this policy was fully endorsed by the Trump administration. It probably would not be fully endorsed by the Biden administration, but judging by the Obama administration's record on this, well, it seems that Biden might not talk the talk, but I really doubtful whether he would not continue to walk the Trump walk uh, on the ground uh, itself. I hope I'm wrong, but this is my, my stance, that we are not going to see any fundamental change in the, uh, that would cause the Israeli government to change its unilateral policy of incremental annexation, displacement, and replacement. One interesting indication for this is that the, one of the main fruits of the current unity government between Kahol Avan and the Likud is a ministry for settlement, something we never had before, or if you want, the ministry for continued colonization. Now it's an official uh, ministry of the Israeli uh, uh, government. Now, of course, one of the preconditions for any successful counter deal to President Trump's steal of the century or any uh, Biden, a wishy-washy Biden new policy on Palestine. One of the, the major preconditions is a counter deal. And this counter deal has to be a Palestinian counter deal. And we won't have a Palestinian counter deal if we won't have Palestinian unity and a democratic uh, uh, leadership representing the whole of the Palestinian community, uh, wherever they are inside the homeland or outside the homeland. So I'm, I'm going, not going to go into it because I think that's very clear. But while we are hoping for such a dramatic change within the Palestinian leadership and orientation and a clear Palestinian message that will tell us how the, the Palestinian national movement defines the project of liberation in the 21st century, while we're waiting for it and hoping for it uh, to happen, there's still a lot we can do outside uh, 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 of Palestine, which, and with this I would uh, come to conclusion, which will, can exploit the conundrum that I described in the beginning of my talk. And this means that what we are looking for 
to my mind, uh, two major campaigns that uh, had to be enhanced, coordinated, and pushed forward. And I think they can really make a change. One campaign is already taking place, so it has to be enhanced and reinforced. And this is to turn the energy that exists in civil societies around the world, including in the United States, an energy that produces daily acts of solidarity with the Palestinian people and making it a political force that influences the corridors of power, be they in the government, as I said, or in the media or in the academia. We should uh, change the curriculum that uh, in, uh, that uh, includes uh, lessons about Palestine, whether in high schools or in universities. We should demand from the mainstream media more space for the true, true version of the history of Palestine and an expanded uh, exposure of what goes on uh, today. And we should try and push into the politics from above to make a change. I know it's, it's a huge mountain to climb, but I think it's an important uh, assignment to continue because it's not just about the West. You're listening to Ilan Pape and Diana Butu on Israel and Palestine. What's next? This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs of this program and our Edward Said books. It's not just about the West. Normalization, so-called normalization of Arab regimes with Israel exposes, especially in the case of places like Bahrain or the Sudan, uh, exposes the tension between what we know is the democratic will of people over there when it comes to Palestine and how it contradicts diametrically the policies of these governments when they decide to betray the Palestinians and normalize their relationship with Israel. I don't know about the Emirates, but definitely in the case of Bahrain and the Sudan, uh, this is not uh, a policy that uh, reflects in any way what uh, these societies who have shown in the past great solidarity with the Palestinian people would tolerate. And we've seen what happened to the so-called peace between Egypt and Israel and uh, Jordan and Israel. So this movement from a clear, genuine position of solidarity of the civil society to be a power of force, a democratic power of force that changes policy from above is one campaign. And the second one, with this I will end, I think that there are two groups of people one could put it this way, that we are only now starting to see uh, uh, as being connected to what one can call a network of identification uh, with Palestine. One are the indigenous people around the world, whether these are Native Americans, uh, uh, Native Americans in South America, uh, uh, people who are fighting for their indigenous rights, who are like the Palestinians, the victims of settler colonialism. I think that these people are posing important questions on international law, on the international community's behavior towards oppressed uh, and colonized people. 
And I think much more can be, be done as a global network in this direction. And finally, and uh, uh, I think a lot of you would agree with me, the last thing that, or the second group of people, we need to cement the connection in this in the global struggle for freedom and justice in Palestine are people who are not in the West. Any sober assessment of Western and in particular American involvement in the question of Palestine can only come back with one conclusion, that this involvement has contributed to the destruction of Palestine and distant us significantly for any chance for a genuine reconciliation and just peace in that country. And therefore, we should look for other countries in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in South America, and demand from these countries to take a more active role in the question of Palestine, because the way the world is structured today uh, is affecting them as well as those of us who live in historically Palestine. And Palestine is nowadays the uh, case of injustice that epitomizes so many other issues of injustice around the world. It may be not the worst case, but it's definitely the one that catches the eye because of the hypocrisy and the double talk that has accompanied the global engagement with this question for so many years. So I think that while we're waiting for a united, democratic, and authentic Palestinian orientation for all of us to move forward, and hopefully, as Diana said, leaving behind old ideas like the two-state solution, which have been dead now for a while, and taking us towards a path that would lead for a democratic state for all, in historical Palestine with the implementation of the Palestinian refugees vital return. While we're waiting for it, let's build a network, uh, or let's network with groups, states, and societies that usually are not considered to be important for the cause of Palestine. And let's pay less attention to those we always thought have the power to change the reality in Palestine, such as the United States and Europe. Uh, these, the West has disappointed us. The West has a responsibility for what happened and happen is happening nowadays in Palestine. But the, the world is not just the West. The rest of the world is as important as the West. Thank you. These are all very good questions. So. In terms of uh, post Mahmoud Abbas, I think we should talk for a minute about Mahmoud Abbas and uh, what he represents. And I, I, I saw that there was a question about, um, about the issue of uh, elections and what is it that he's afraid of. Um, so I'll talk about, I'll, I'll tie those two in. So what it is that he is afraid of is that you have to understand that Mahmoud Abbas built his entire career on this one issue, this one, it's a one trick pony, so to speak, right? They, I, we used to joke that the only alternative in his mind to negotiations was more negotiations. And he spent the past 27 years just simply focused on 
negotiating, negotiating, and, and only negotiating, which has meant that he has ignored a lot of other strategies that are out there. Um, what are the other strategies that are out there? One is BDS, uh, something that Elon spoke about. Um, BDS is something that, that he has been loath to sign on to, in large part because, um, because he's afraid of what the backlash is going to be if he supports BDS. And he's afraid that it takes on a life of its own if he supports BDS, which he does. And so he wants to be the person who is in control. Another strategy that he's ignored is, as I mentioned, at the, you know, at the intro, you mentioned the work that I did with the International Court of Justice on the wall. That was a legal victory, and yet it was never pushed to be implemented. It was never pushed by the Palestinian Authority to be implemented by the international community. And so he has similarly ignored all of those, you know, whether it's legal measures that can be taken to try to hold Israel accountable. So he's neither pushed for BDS, nor has he pushed for legal accountability, nor has he even re-examined the idea of one state. So everything that he's done has just been, let's just keep doing the same, the same, the same, the same. Not only that, he is not, he's not re-examined where the funding base should be for the Palestinian Authority. And, and again, this is another important issue that he's just kept us um, beholden to Israel. I mean, Israel now maintains an occupation. And before the pandemic, the prime minister and the president were flying around the world to collect money for Israel to maintain its military occupation. And so, you know, this is the perversity of it. So who is it that will succeed him? I want to be clear in, in saying one thing. We Palestinians won't allow anybody that we don't choose to succeed him. There's been a lot of talk, and I hear it all the time, about these people, the, the Americans are going to impose X person, the Americans are going to impose Y person, they're going to impose Z person. We don't work that way. When the Israelis tried to impose on us mayors in the 70s, and they went so far as to bomb some of the candidates, to attack them and to, put, to firebomb their cars, you know, we went out and made sure that even in those elections that they still elected PLO candidates. So Palestinians don't take very kindly to, to having you know, Israel or the U.S. impose somebody on us. We will do our own choosing. The bigger question is, will there even be a Palestinian authority? And that's the part that I am very much questioning. I don't see that anybody is rushing forward and saying, you know, here, I, I want to be it. I want to be the next Palestinian Authority president. Or I don't see anybody rushing forward after the pass, after uh, Saad Arakat's um, uh, passing saying, you know, I want to be the the next uh, chief Palestinian negotiator. Nobody's rushing forward to do that. In fact, all of the the polls are indicating the exact opposite, that even though we have um, no political parties advocating for one state, we, there's not one on, the, on either side of the green line, that we have 30% of Palestinians polled saying that they support one state. And even though the only platform that these political parties have put forward is two states, this is the Palestinian parties, is two states, 
we have more than 50% of people believing that don't not believing it in, in it any longer. So, you know, the, the idea that somehow this is going to be imposed from outside is not going to happen. It won't be, it won't happen. It won't be acceptable. And the idea that there may even be a future Palestinian authority is also questionable. This is why I don't even remember. I think it was three years ago. I wrote about how the Palestinian authority should no longer exist and that they should be instead thinking of means to wind down while at the same time keeping the struggle and making sure that we have representation, making sure that our political demands are being met. In terms of the issue of priorities and how to press for decolonization, it it begins with a few things. The first is that there's been far too much effort placed on focusing on a solution, right? There's been too much effort that's been placed on two-state solution, whatever solution, like, the, you know, always with the idea that somehow the settlements need to be accommodated. The theory is that Israel placed down these settlements, and now we, the Palestinians, just have to accommodate it. We just have to, you know, accept it and move on. And this is very much illegitimate. And instead, I think that we should be pressing to make sure that these settlements get uprooted, to make sure that these settlers are not allowed to be given legitimacy, that it's no longer acceptable, that the U.S. doesn't, we're talking about the latest things that the U.S. has done, that is no longer considered acceptable for these agreements to be signed with Ariel University. Or if you if you notice, there was a one-two that Pompeo did the other day. He not only recognized settlement goods as being part of Israel, therefore recognizing annexation, but he also said that anybody who pushes for these to be labeled otherwise is anti-Semitic. Uh, and so, you know, so he twinned these two, it's the only way he can get away with it. He twinned these two issues together. And instead, what we need to be doing is really pushing to make sure that these, these settlers are held accountable, but also making sure that the state, which is a settler colonial state, is also held accountable. And this is why I think it's really vital for us to be not only pushing for BDS, but also to be employing other techniques that can really hold Israel to account. Whether it's legal techniques, and I know how frail they are, I know the origins of them, etc., but things that will actually begin to make sure that Israel is not treated as a normal state, but that it actually that it actually pays a price, and that the settlers pay a price for continuing for continuing their work. But look, I think there's lots of different areas that can be lots of different avenues. You know, there's a lot of systems within the UN, which you know, as as faulty as they are, they're still there to focus on apartheid. A lot of work begins locally to make sure that BDS takes shape, takes form. You know, if you think back to the, to the beginning, or not to the beginning, but it's, you know, mid anti-apartheid struggle when BDS was taking off there, the, a lot of the BDS campaigns were actually very localized. It was people who didn't want to have South African wines or people didn't want to have South African citrus or people that didn't want to have you know, South African, you name it, in their stores within Ireland, the the cashiers refusing to check out the the these South African goods. So these these measures can be started locally and can be picked up locally. But I want to be clear 
that BDS is a tool, it's not an end goal. It's just a tool and we have to continue focusing it on it. You know, in the last 50 years, negotiators, either between the two sides or uh, mediators who were genuine or cynical mediators, spend uh, thousands of hours uh, discussing issues which had nothing to do with the real uh, problems in Palestine and therefore wasted 50 years on discussing issues that didn't bring us any closer to reconciliation, peace and justice. Imagine if all these hours and hours in the last 50 years would have been devoted to the question that you have introduced to us. Imagine if for 50 years we would have discussed how can the right of return be implemented? How can uh, an apartheid state be decolonized and replaced by a democratic state? I'm sure human beings have the ability to produce solution to such questions. They have done it in the past. So first of all, we have to take into account that this has not been done. Uh, and uh, moreover, what has been done uh, just took us in a different direction, perpetuated the oppression, the colonization, the ethnic cleansing. So you don't undo colonization and apartheid in a week or two. Uh, you need time for that, but you have the human capacity to do it. That's my first point. The second point is that we already live in one state here in Palestine. This is a state that imposes its power over Palestinians in different ways. You uh, experience the one state, which is the, the apartheid state, in a different way when you live in Gaza the West Bank or Haifa, but they are all, we are all under a republic that discriminates in every aspect of life against anyone who is a Palestinian. So uh, we are not even talking about building a new state. We are talking about changing a regime as has been done in South Africa. You didn't build the one state in South Africa, but you brought down an apartheid regime and you replaced it with a, a democratic system of one person, one vote. And, and I think this is what becomes clearer. In fact, the unilateral Israeli actions of annexation, the incremental annexation, has contributed even more to this situation where the Israeli oppression is now all over the place and uh, there is no real distinction anymore between different parts of Palestine in terms of colonization and therefore if you decolonize historical Palestine you decolonize what is today Israel, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. We have to remember that uh, Zionism is a settler colonial movement which means it's uh, a movement of people who came from Europe and uh, targeted the country where already someone else lived. And like all settler colonial movements, including the one in the United States, they saw themselves as the indigenous people, mm -hmm. and so the native Palestinians as aliens. And like all the encounters between settler colonial movements and indigenous people, 
the main motive behind their actions when it came to the native population was to remove it, or as uh, the late uh, Patrick Wolf used to say, to eliminate it. Elimination took different places, different forms in different places in the world. In Palestine, it took the form of ethnic cleansing. And the first great opportunity for them to implement this uh, idea uh, came in 1948. But it was an incomplete ethnic cleansing. Half of the Palestinians remained in Palestine. And after Israel uh, occupied the 20%, it failed or didn't want to occupy in 1948 and had 100% of historical Palestine under its control. It was still controlling millions of uh, Palestinians. Mm -hmm. These two issues, the the geography and the demography, uh, which are very typical to settler colonial movements, uh, are all the time in interplay. The more territory you you take, the more Palestinians you have. And they have failed to solve this issue from their perspective. Uh, This is not just an incomplete ethnic cleansing. In their eyes, in the eyes of the political center of Israel, the project is incomplete. Uh, it is maybe completed geographically, but it's not completed demographically. And when it's not completed demographically, it is not completed ideologically. So there is this basic issue, which many Israelis tend to forget every now and then because they are troubled by economic hardships or they are troubled by internal conflicts in the Jewish society that have nothing to do with the Palestinians, the Mizrahi Ashkenazi uh, uh, rift, the Jews who came from Arab countries and Jews who came from European countries. There is even a more important, I think, uh, contest uh, or or tension in Israel between religious Jews and and secular uh, Jews. And of course, there is a huge gap between uh, the rich and the poor in Israel, the deepest gap or the, the largest gap within the OECD is in Israel, those who have and those who haven't. Uh, When the main attempt by governments is to deal with these issues by creating a common enemy, if you want, a common problem. So they're using the Palestinian problem sometimes to cement a society that has a lot of internal conflicts. But on the other hand, they send the message that the conflict is over. And therefore, I think that if you look at Israel from a macroeconomic kind of, from above, the figures are very promising. It performs well. But if you go deeper into the society, the gaps are very, very wide and are growing. Or the the leadership of that society, when it comes to any issue which is not security, which is not the conflict, does not show great uh, ability, as we have seen in the way it dealt with the uh, COVID-19 crisis. So I think what you will see in Israel is a divided society torn by these conflicts between religious and and secular Jews, between Ashkenazi and and Mizrahi Jews, but one that the, the leadership would always try to unite around the common enemy which usually are the Palestinians. Sometimes it's Iran, or sometimes it's Hezbollah, but quite often it's it's the Palestinians. Um, the sense that they have, and I think that's where they're wrong, 
they have a sense that you can continue with this, that this is manageable. So they're managing a country. They're not solving any of the issues, but they believe that they can manage it, partly because the, the political elite is totally disconnected from the way the rest of the society lives. And every now and then there is an eruption, as there was in 2011, 2012, of social unrest and so on, partly because they don't are not aware of it, and partly because there is still no call, proper coalition in the left that can really galvanize all these people who are oppressed, not only ideologically, but also economically and socially, and create a real coalition of forces that would also realize the connection between the economic situation, the social in situation, and the settler colonial nature of the state. Um, I think that, like the Crusaders state in a way, they can manage this juggling of, of balls for a while. I don't think they could do it forever. Uh, but much of it depends, of course, we come back to the issue of Palestinian unity, a clear mm -hmm. Palestinian orientation, our ability to change international uh, communities' perceptions and engagement with Palestine. But it is a country that has a facade of strengths, of unity, of power, but there are many cracks in that wall. They managed to keep it, to maintain it, but I, I don't think that they will, as a historian, my sense is I can, I can ident identify that these cracks are fundamental cracks. These are huge cracks in potential without solving their relationship with the Palestinians and a genuine relationship with the Arab world, not with regimes, but with the people of the Arab world. And part of its problems and part of its solutions, they will not be able to maintain this alienated geopolitical outfit forever. History taught us, in the case of South Africa and other places, that you cannot maintain such an alien existence forever. You were just listening to Ilan Pape and Diana Butu on Israel and Palestine. What's next? They spoke in late November. Ilan Pape is professor of history at the University of Exeter. Diana Butu is a human rights attorney based in Ramallah, Palestine. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Diana Butu and Ilan Pape on Israel and Palestine, What's Next? And for my two books with Edward Said, The Pen and the Sword and Culture and Resistance, just give us a call at one 800 1977 Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call, 
444-444-1977. Special thanks to the Middle East Children's Alliance. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. We go out with the Palestinian ensemble Al-Funun, performing an instrumental piece called Farda. CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you.